Welcome to season two of the Told Me to Learn and Develop for Medical Educators podcast series from the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, we are dedicating this first podcast of this of season two to talking about the impact of mistreatment on students and residents in the form of bias and microaggressions, and what we can do as educators to affect change. I couldn't be more honored to have joining me for this discussion, Dr. Dowen Boatwright, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Yale School of Medicine and the Yale School of Medicine Teaching and Learning Center faculty associate for diversity, equity, and inclusion educator development. Dr. Boatwright also serves on the Department of Emergency Medicine's Diversity Committee and the Dean's Advisory Council on LGBTQI Affairs. Dr. Boatwright is a graduate of Morehouse College, got an MBA from Rice University, and received his MD from Baylor College of Medicine. After his emergency medicine residency, Dr. Boatwright completed a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholar Fellowship at the Yale School of Medicine, and then stayed to do the important work he is doing now. His research focuses on the effects of bias on medical trainees. He also happened to serve as the keynote speaker of Netter's 2021 Annual Dean's Address. Dowen, I'm so happy to welcome you back to Netter, and thank you for being our first guest for season two of our podcast series. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm ex- extremely excited to talk, chat with you. So Dowen, I would like to start by talking about terminology. What is mistreatment and what is a microaggression and what is the difference? Sure. And thank you for that question too. And I think it's interesting because I think the definition of mistreatment is very challenging. Um, Nevertheless, I think we all feel like we know mistreatment when we see it. I think defining it concisely can be challenging. Um, The Association of American Medical Colleges defines mistreatment as either intentional or unintentional behavior that occurs um, when someone shows disrespect for the dignity of others and in a way that unreasonably interferes with the learning process. And historically, um, the AAMC has focused on forms of overt mistreatment, such as a medical student experiencing physical harm or someone being denied opportunities based on their race and ethnicity. And again, these are very overt forms of mistreatment. Whereas microaggressions, you know, represent something more subtle and something that hasn't historically been um, studied with the same um, frequency and we don't have the same understanding. But microaggressions are often considered to be um, subtle, sometimes even unintentional acts um, that communicate to members of a marginalized group um, instances of discrimination. So that was really helpful. Thank you. And I think, and I think probably as we talk, those subtleties might even come out, right? Um, in terms of the difference between the two. And what are a few examples of microaggressions? I think that's really helpful to think about what, what might they be? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, they're very subtle and often people describe them as occurring very commonly during their daily experience as well. So one, when we've interviewed medical students that comes up very frequently is that students of color state that at some point someone has approached them and made a statement to the effect that the reason they were admitted to medical school was because maybe they're they're a person of color. So someone coming up to me perhaps and saying, oh, you were admitted to this medical school because you're black. And as of note, that actually did happen to me when I was in medical school as well. 
Um, another common microaggression that people talk about is just being mistaken for someone else of color, despite mm-hmm. there being no other similarity. So again, we were um, interviewing medical students and residents. One, one resident who is um, in an OBGYN residency, for instance, said that her attendings in the OR commonly call her by the name of the other black um, female resident, even though um, she was 5'5 five, five and the other resident was six feet tall. And granted, they were both women of color. She noted that her skin was much darker than the other woman's skin. So really, besides both being black, they had no other similarities. But yet, in the eyes of the attending, they were commonly seen the same person. So I, I think those are two examples. Um, another thing that people commonly mention is um, there's this assumption of criminality, for instance. So maybe a person of color is walking down the street and then someone sees them and begins to uh, clutch their bag or mm-hmm. maybe walk to the other side of the street. So again, it's a very subtle statement in many ways, but also communicating um, that the person from that minoritized group is an outsider and potentially not um, truly welcome in the community. Those are common things that I hear the, our, our students talk about as well as examples. And I know that they're called microaggressions, right? And yet the impact of them, um, both individually, right? Even one of those acts or one of those behaviors from somebody else, whether intentional or unintentional, probably feels bigger than a micro. I can speak to that from my lived experience, but I wonder if you could speak to that from your lived experience and or your research. You know, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's truly fascinating about microaggressions is that study after study is actually showing significant impact on people who experience microaggressions and how they feel about their learning environment, their working environment, and also um, how these microaggressions influence their mental health. Um, it's interesting. When I, when I first started doing um, work on microaggressions, I was really excited about it. We just developed this um, survey for microaggressions. We were collecting data. And my wife and I actually took a trip to visit some friends in Dubai. And I was talking to um, our friend in Dubai, who's also um, a practicing physician, and she was telling us just how bad discrimination is in Dubai. And I was asking her, you know, what have you experienced? And she was saying that, you know, when she was actually applying for a job, people would flat out ask her what her race and ethnicity was. And if she was not a member or at least somehow related to the Saudi royal family, she wouldn't get the job. And they could ask her that question just flat out. And I was like, oh, my God, that's that's just blatant racism. And then I started questioning. I was like, maybe I'm going too far exploring these microaggressions because, you know, again, these are much more subtle um, acts than what she was describing. But when we started looking at our data, we actually found a very strong association between the, both the experience of microaggressions and the frequency of microaggressions and student satisfaction in medical school and also um, screens for depression such that the students that reported the highest uh, frequency of microaggressions were almost four times more likely um, to screen positive for depression. So we were actually seeing a very strong association there. And again, that association has been found in other studies outside of medicine that look at higher education and also just microaggressions um, in the work environment out in other fields as well. So I'm really glad you brought us around to your study. You, you beat me to it. That's great. So let's talk about it. So let's talk about your study that was published this year. It was in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. The title is The Association of Microaggressions with Depressive Symptoms and Institutional Satisfaction Among a National Cohort of Medical Students. And you oversampled purposefully 
students who um, identify as underrepresented in medicine. And you did this so that you could get um, the, the power to show some statistical significance, which you did. And it was really, um, a, a, to me, a very powerful results. So what really struck me was this very clear dose response of the frequency with, with which a student experienced microaggressions and their positive screen for depression. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. And I think that was one of the findings that we found very surprising as well. We definitely thought there would be an association between um, depression or symptoms of depression and the frequency of microaggressions. But to see that dose-dependent, very stepwise progression as the frequency of microaggressions increased and students screening positive for depression was very startling to us. And again, you know, this was... um, this was a cross-sectional study, so it can't show causation, but just seeing that dose response is very compelling evidence to, about there being a causal, or at least a potential causal link. Yeah. And, and of course, it makes sense as well, um, intuitive sense, but it's really important that, that we can demonstrate, right, as an as a educational community, that the, the evidence behind it. There's this evidence-based um, findings, and hopefully we can target our interventions, right, based exactly. upon that evidence. Exactly. What about also the study showed, which I thought this was interesting um, as well, about the numbers around being more likely to consider medical school transfer. So students who experienced at least one microaggression weekly were more likely to consider medical school transfer. So we're talking about a difference between 14.5% considering medical school transfer versus 4.7%. That's a big difference. Right. There seemed to be a tremendous impact there, or at least a tremendous influence. And I think we're often mindful of the lack of diversity, both among medical students, but especially among practicing physicians. And a lot of times we talk about the problem being outside of the medical school institution or the academic medical institution, and the problems being with the pipeline going through K through 12. And obviously there are issues there, but I think some of this data is also showing a lot of the problems still in academic medicine itself. And even what may seem subtle, like a microaggression, may have significant impact on that, uh, the pipeline moving forward, which, again, I think goes back to what you're talking about in terms of the medical community needing to I- identify interventions that can successfully um, address the learning environment. So, so, so let me ask you about that. So, that, so in the study, I talked about that students are much more likely to want to transfer medical schools, but even more disturbing is the difference of students who've considered withdrawing from medical school. So that's 18% versus 6%. And so do you see, is there any data or any studies that have looked at post-medical school? Um, Do we see um, bias, microaggressions um, in residency or in practice um, causing physicians to leave medicine? Is there, are, do any such studies exist? And Lisa, thank you for that question too. So, you know, I think a lot of the story uh, studies rather historically have looked at the experience of more overt discrimination 
um, Dr. Marcelo Nunez-Smith, um, who actually was just elected to the, um, the Academy of Medicine, did a study over 10 years ago that looked at physician turnover and the experience of discrimination and found a very strong association there. Um, there was a study that looked at surgery residents in the New England Journal of Medicine that I want to say was published in 2019, and it found that over a quarter of um, surgeons in graduate medical education reported experiencing some sort of discrimination, and they found that discrimination was associated with burnout. Um, so mm. we are seeing studies in um, residency as well. We actually have, we have not published a study yet, but we replicated the study with medical students in GME as well and are finding almost the exact same findings. Yeah, the same. I would, I would imagine it is the same. So that's pretty amazing. So 20, you said 25% of surgery residents? Yes, are reporting some type of discrimination. Um, and this um, study actually looked at a variety of um, types of discrimination, including gender discrimination, racial, ethnic discrimination, and so forth. And then they're, and they're experiencing much higher rates of burnout. Exactly. And then exactly. we know that burnout is is in fact a risk for leaving precisely yeah so um i mean that's and that's the um the worst scenario that we want to see right we don't want to be losing great doctors um and students who are bound to be great doctors so let me go back for one second to the concept of mistreatment so i just just to put some numbers to it right so the Association of American Medical Colleges conducts a survey of all graduating medical students each year, and they publicly report that aggregate data. And as you said, students are asked about all kinds of mistreatment. And so just as one example of one of those things, and you already mentioned this one. So in 2021, 742 U.S. medical students reported being subjected to racially or ethnically offensive remarks or names, either occasionally or frequently. And then given that in that, in in 2021, um, there were not quite 1,200 students answering that survey who identified as Black or African American. So looking at those two numbers, 742 and 1,100 out of 1,179, the majority of black students are experiencing this overt bias. So I can only imagine that the incidence of microaggressions is far higher than that. Exactly, I, I think that's a phenomenal point. You know, going back to the study we published um, in the journal, General Internal Medicine, we found that the prevalence was close to 50% of students experiencing wow. at least one microaggression a month. So again, half of our students, at least monthly, are experiencing a microaggression, and a quarter of the students we surveyed reported experiencing at least one microaggression weekly. So a very common, um, very common occurrence that, again, currently the AAMC is um, not monitoring. So like you said, on an annual year-to-year basis, we really don't know um, how frequent microaggressions are occurring, although all the data suggests it's very common. Yeah. So... The last time you and I talked, you made the point that you made today, which I think is just so important, which is that the student mistreatment data um, in general and related to bias, it's just not budging. Um, So I thought maybe we could first talk about, before we talk about what we could do as individuals, um, what can be done at the institutional level to move that needle? I I think that's a great point. 
for some reason, you know, the prevalence just seems very recalcitrant. It's just, like you said, it doesn't seem to be budging. And I think it's important to look at what institutions are currently doing. And I think, especially since a lot of this, again, we think is related to implicit bias, there's a lot of implicit bias training that's taking place across institutions. And I think that's, in many ways, um, the first interventions many institutions and even corporations um, are turning to. Um, and the second is reporting incidents of mistreatment and then so, what, um, having some type of response um, to address those um, instances of mistreatment. And I, I think it's important to look at the data that surrounds both of them because, again, implicit bias training, I, I think we've all probably been offered a training at some point, and if not frequently. But surprisingly, as common as it is, the data around the benefit of implicit bias training is very poor. So most about that, but thank you for touching on that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think a lot of the data shows mixed benefits, even immediately. Some some studies have even shown that implicit bias training increases people's racist attitudes afterwards. Um, but universally, most of the studies have shown after a few months, definitely after a year, people's both implicit and explicit attitudes don't really change after an implicit bias training. And that kind of makes sense because, again, especially if we're talking about implicit attitudes, these are stimuli that we're getting from the environment constantly from a from a very young age. So it's it's it seems unrealistic that we could have a 30-minute, hour-long training and suddenly, you know, after decades of um, being, you know, of discriminatory um, stimuli being presented to us at that changing. So so it, it makes sense that implicit bias training really isn't effective. I think in many cases, people acknowledge that it's not beneficial, but it may still have some use in the form of at least starting a conversation. But I, I do think we need to start challenging our assumptions that implicit bias training can be the core of an intervention to affect change in our learning environment. And then similarly, I think reporting is often necessary, especially for very egregious acts of mistreatment. Um, But again, when we actually look at the data behind reporting, I don't know of any studies that show that a learning environment or a culture of an institution has changed solely based on a reporting system. In fact, much of the data shows that both the person making the complaint and then the person um, against whom the complaint is made, neither are very satisfied with the process afterwards. Um, we've interviewed a lot of medical students and residents about their experience. And when um, almost universally, when we've spoken with them and they bring up having made a complaint themselves, they always say, but nothing was done. And they were, they're never satisfied with it. And mm-hmm. you know, I think something probably was done, but it, what was done wasn't transparent. And it, That's again, probably didn't affect any change. So I think both of those systems, I think a reliance on either of those two interventions, be it implicit bias training or reporting, should be. Um, just we need more reflection in that, that area, and it, we need to figure out ways that actually can have more structural change. Um, both of those, I think, interventions focus on changing individual behavior instead of actually focusing on structural changes. So, in, in terms of, can I? And, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. as we're talking about reporting, I just want to bring up one thing that I'm, I would love to get your thoughts on. So. Sure. We know that there's the problem with reporting and then the reporting structure and what happens and making sure that it's transparent, we're communicating, right? So one reason, we know that students don't report the majority of instances of mistreatment. They don't report it. And one reason is because they feel that nothing is going to change, 
Right. But the main reason is they're worried about retaliation. You've got a student. I mean, I remember being in my third year clerkships. And of course, at that point, you know, I think the things that were probably done and said <laughs> at that mm-hmm. point, you know, it right. was so it was, it was so frequent and so common. But um, I don't even know that we had a reporting mechanism, first of all. But I don't think that the feeling of vulnerability of the students of this person is going to be submitting an evaluation. This is a very high stakes situation for me. And maybe I even want to go into this specialty. I have to keep my mouth shut because this could affect my grade. I don't think that's changed. I completely that agree. That perception with you. has changed. Do you agree with that? No, I think that's I think that's a phenomenal point. And I think when we look at even the student data for students that say they experienced mistreatment, for the students who say they did not report it, the two main reasons are just like you said. One, they don't feel like anything would have happened. And two, they have a fear of retaliation. And I think part of that fear of retaliation is just kind of built into the culture we have right now around reporting, which is still kind of a justice system based on punishment. And I think if we could change that culture to where reporting isn't seen as a system where you're going to punish someone who maybe committed injustice against you, but maybe more of a culture of compassion and understanding where we're actually going to try to educate that person who may have you know, mistreated you or done just something discriminatory against you, I think we'll have a culture that's more receptive and a culture where there will be less retaliation. Can you imagine how that could happen? Yes. And, you know, again, I think we're still in the very early stages of moving away from this culture of maybe justice being punitive and moving towards this um, system of justice more being about increasing compassion and understanding. But one um, intervention that is becoming more common both in the criminal justice system, um, but also in medical education is a focus on an intervention called restorative justice. And again, in this situation, instead of someone issuing a complaint and then maybe someone being punished for an instance, what essentially happens is someone still makes a report of um, some type of mistreatment, but then both parties are brought together by someone who's very well trained in this system of restorative justice. And the parties are brought together, and then sometimes even members of that community are brought together for this session as well. And there is a very honest frank, transparent conversation between the person making the complaint and the person um, against whom the complaint's made about what happened, how it affected both of them, and not just those two people um, interpersonally, but how it affected the community as well. Because often we know that instances of mistreatment don't just happen in isolation. So maybe someone saw that act of discrimination and they were actually affected as well. So you have a conversation between the two individuals and also people in the community about what that mistreatment was, again, how it affected them, but then also the members of that group reaching a consensus upon how um, the situation can be resolved mm-hmm. in a way that will be satisfactory to both parties. And I think it creates uh, enhancing satisfaction on two, both ends in terms of the person that's aggrieved, such that they have more power, they feel like they have more power and say in how um, the response to their mistreatment occurred. Um, and also, it offers a way for the person who committed that act of mistreatment to return to the community and still maintain a relationship with that person who maybe submitted the complaint in a very, again, way that enhances that person's understanding of what happened and that person's compassion for the other, other individual as well. 
And I think when we have that degree of understanding, there's less likely to be retaliation. I think the retaliation happens a lot of times because the person against whom the complaint's made doesn't understand the complaint, thinks they're being attacked, and that mm-hmm. retaliation is actually mm-hmm. a defensive mechanism. Right. Um, so um, this has actually been implemented at University of California, Davis, and also Rush Medical School. And again, I think it's been early, but so far there's been um, the results seem positive and people seem satisfied with it. And I know the AAMC is trying to implement this at other medical schools as well. It reminds me a lot of actually um, where we've come with medical errors. Exactly. Uh, in that, that you know, it was you know years ago, right? Medical errors were not divulged, right? This was the, you know, it was kept in the closet and we did not talk about if there was a medical error that happened because there was so much fear of, of, um, of legal action and all these things. And now you have, um, you know, hospitals that are having daily conversations about what near misses did we have? What could we have done differently? How can we do it better? And the culture really has shifted dramatically. Absolutely. I think you're right. I I think that degree of transparency that you're talking about, and also, like you said, trying to figure out, and again, in transparent ways, how to improve is going to be essential. And I think, like you said, you see it in safety in medicine, you see it in aviation. And I I think we'll need something similar to change the culture of academic medicine or medical, the medical field in general. Yeah. So I think that's one way we can address change around the culture of justice in terms of mistreatment. I do think there are some other organizational reforms that can be made on the structural level as well. When we look at um, studies that have shown what can reduce implicit bias over time and in a sustainable way, most of that's based on this idea of social contact, such that when members of different groups interact in a positive way, implicit bias is reduced over time. So I think there's, some again, some very basic things organizations can do. Um, that again are structural. And one, obviously, just hire more faculty from diverse backgrounds. Again, when we talk to medical students all the time, they talk, many talk about how they literally know one faculty of color at their medical school. And hiring more diverse faculty, again, is going to allow for more intergroup contact that can ultimately reduce implicit bias. Um, another thing is we know there are significant disparities in terms of promotion and salary, in terms of race, ethnicity, and also gender. And I think an organization can ensure that they're promoting women and people of color at an equal rate and also ensure that they're paying everyone equitably. And I think those are just some very simple things organizations can do that can model um, the importance of having equity and inclusion within their learning environment that could ultimately reduce implicit bias over time. Thank you. I think it's really helpful to think about the fact that there are some very concrete things we can do at the institutional level. I do want to jump back to one piece that I realize we should talk about for um, students who are listening. And that is that this concept of retaliation, um, that the perception of retaliation is very real. I, I know that for us, and I'm sure at your school as well, we do actually have many mechanisms in place to make sure that retaliation does not happen and that students reporting does not affect their grade. But that perception of retaliation um, and the inevitability of that, that perception, I think, is is going to take, um, you know, significant culture, uh, a significant culture shift uh, to, to, to really move that needle in students' minds. Um, 
so I just wanted to come back to that for a second. And, and what I want to move on to now is we've talked about the systems level and some of our listeners might be working at that systems level, I'm sure are, and, and be able to, to think about these larger cultural shifts. I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about what we can do as individual faculty or staff to address racism and bias and we don't want to be the perpetrators of those microaggressions. I'm sure nobody listening today wants to be. Um, we want to make sure that the educational space that our students are in is allowing their learning to flourish and certainly not inhibiting it in any way or, um, or marginalizing any individual student. So what can we do as individuals? You know, I think there are a number of things that um, we as educators can do to try to promote, um, you know, an inclusive and equitable environment. I think one of the things that we can start doing is become more comfortable addressing instances of mistreatment and discrimination when we see it. I think a lot of times we'll speak with, again, students and residents, and they'll say maybe a patient says something discriminatory or racist to them, and Mm -hmm. no one said anything, including the ending. And I think that can be, students also talk about that being the most disheartening part, not that they, the patient actually said something that was racist, but then no one on the team even addressed it. Right. And, you know, again, I I understand how that can happen. You know, in in the moment, we can all be caught off guard, but I think we can maybe take a a bystander or often called now an upstander course. Um, I think as medical educators, we can actually include those in some of the simulations that we do. so we feel more comfortable in the, in the moment when it happens. And I think that can communicate support to learners um, that not only do we care about being anti-racist um, and, you know, reducing mistreatment, um, but that we're actively supporting them as well. So I think that's one simple thing we can do. And can we, and can we talk about that just for one second? So I also want to clarify what's what's um, what might be surprising for people is those numbers um, that we mentioned in terms of the graduation questionnaire, the national mistreatment numbers around bias, those do not include um, experiences related to bias from patients. And patients are are often where students are, um, where the both microaggressions and overt bias experiences are happening. And exactly what you said is is what I have learned both in my experience and in my learning around this is that just the acknowledgement. So just so that we don't say to people, you ha- yes, they should absolutely engage in bystander and upstander training. But even the simple, just to giving them like a simple pearl from today, right? The simple pearl of saying, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Do you want to talk about it? Absolutely. That can have a tremendous uh, impact for a learner or even another faculty member who may be experienced an instance of mistreatment or discrimination. Just like, just like you said, Lisa, just the acknowledgement and the showing of compassion there can have a profound impact on that person feeling like they're still part of the community. Yeah. I mean, learners have said that it feels like a double insult, right? So they've just been um, uh, injured, insulted, right? And in front of often their, their peers or supervisors by a patient. And then on top of it, it was dismissed. Um, so I think that's important um, to share. That's definitely been something that, that I have learned and been grateful to learn about. 
and I cut you off. Okay, so what can we do as individuals? What more can we do? You know, another thing that I think we've talked about previously, at least it's too, is just the importance of mentorship. And I think when we look at the studies of um, the experience of, again, women, the experiences of um, trainees of color, even faculty, the lack of mentorship and a social support systems often um, mentioned. So I, I think people from maybe more privileged backgrounds can make an effort just to train or uh, and mentor um, actively students of color, women, and so forth. And I think that, again, is going to make a tremendous difference in sustaining um, the pipeline and increasing diversity in the educational environment. Um, additionally, also maybe people from privileged backgrounds also getting more education on how to be a successful mentor to people mm-hmm. uh, who are underrepresented in medicine, I think will be important as well. Another part of that too is, again, when people from different groups, different backgrounds interact, there may be disagreements um, and some you know, unintentional conflict. And I think mentors um, can get training as well on how to have some of those difficult conversations in a way that can still promote a positive relationship will be important. You said to me, um, you made a statement to me in the past that I just, I remembered because I thought it was so um, so profound is the way that you stated it. You said you don't have to solve, solve racism to participate. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, I think we've been addressing racism in this country for hundreds of years, and I don't know that the problem is going to go away overnight with one single intervention, but I think you're right. We could all make very proactive, even if they're small steps every day. So a year ago, I interviewed David Acosta, um, the chief diversity officer um, at the Association for American Medical Colleges. And we talked about the rapidly changing landscape of racism and addressing racism in medical education over the last year and a half. Um, Since a year ago, uh, he was the first person that I interviewed for our podcast series. Um, What's changed? Has anything changed? I think there have been changes. I think the biggest change now is a fundamental shift in an idea of complicity. And I think previously the thought was racism existed outside of medicine. Um, And now I think we're understanding more and more the fact that racism can still exist within our own house and also the fundamental need to even address racism that is in society. So structural racism, such as mass incarceration, Um, housing uh, segregation, things like that, that again, don't necessarily have anything to do with the emergency room or the the, uh, medical ICU, but how the hospital and also the medical school as an institution has an obligation to society to address these things on a structural Mm -hmm. level as well. So I think understanding our own complicity and also understanding how we can impact racism societally, I think is changing. Um, The acknowledgement of that is changing. I think what we're still not seeing at this point is while medical schools are you know, starting to name racism, starting to address structural racism, I still think we're lacking tangible acts by many institutions. And so I think that accountability moving forward is going to be important. But I think the, the understanding of the need is changing. One thing that I, that I had seen change that has persisted is I think that our students and residents, I think our learners feel much more empowered to have a voice 
to speak their voice um, and to demand change of their institutions. And I think they're being heard. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I think students are becoming much more sophisticated in how to organize and, you know, yes. And I think that, I think you're right. I think it's forcing institutions to respond. And quite interestingly, I think even a lot of the change we see now in terms of medical schools addressing structural racism and wanting to take more part in societal changes, like you said, still coming from the advocacy of students. Well, I think what will be interesting is when we actually see a point that not only are we seeing bottom-up change or the call for change bottom-up, but when we start seeing institutions top-down call for change as well. One thing that I definitely want our Netter listeners to know about is that we are going to be doing a allyship training program this year at Netter, and that's a new initiative for us. So um, this is my pitch to make sure that people know about it and that when you uh, get the, the invitation, that uh, we hope that you'll sign up to serve as an ally and to get training. I think that's wonderful, Lisa. I think that's an intervention that can be transformational. I think historically, you know, people from minoritized backgrounds talk about the burden of always be the only person to respond to mistreatment and in instances of discrimination. And I, I think it can just completely build a new community when um, we have allies as well. I think that that is a great place for us to wrap up. Um, Dowan, thank you so much for sharing your research and your expertise with us today, for helping us to recognize the profound impact bias has on our learners and for giving us direction in our efforts for positive change. Thank you so much for having me. Many thanks to Down Boatwright for helping us kick off season two of our podcast series. This was the Told Me podcast to learn and develop from medical educators from the Netter School of Medicine Faculty Development Program at Quinnipiac University. I'm Lisa Coplett. Thanks for listening and join me for our next podcast. We'll be going back to a pre-pandemic interview with Dr. Douglas McHugh, our Assistant Dean for the Foundational Science Curriculum and previously the course director for our Scholarly Reflection and Concentration Capstone course, and Dr. Joanna Marantidis, who was a Netter fourth year student at the time and is now a urology resident. I'll be talking with them about teaching evidence-based medicine, when it should be taught, how to make it feel relevant, and how faculty can help it click for students. I would also like to thank the people who contributed to today's show, Katie Lyons, our wonderful producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts.